Chapter 3 The Fury and the Mire You float the spoon between her lips, holding her eyes so she will swallow. Her yen for death is a powerful reflex that, incensed, spews your attempts to thwart it. Why are you constantly stuffing her like a goose, she seethes. She is full, full, her stomach bursting with your damned soup. She thought you loved her, your old grandmother on her deathbed, in this wretched place where her drunken son and his miserable wife would not even notice her passing till she outstank them. Why won't you leave her alone? You, the only one who cares for her and knows how tired she is of this terrible suffering. If you someday grow old, Joaquin, which she hopes you never will, you'll see then what a mercy it is to be let go. When she has exhausted herself, you slide in another spoonful and she cries out, Torturer! You do love her and you are the only one. She is right on both counts. At most, you are able to feed her a small bowl of soup daily the rations of one in a prison camp, which is how she and you both regard this place that you are forced to call home, where you are compelled to live by your mutual refusal to abandon each other. But there is no blame. She is so old, malnourished, her stomach swollen tight, her limbs skeletal, her frame shrunken to a girl's. She would fit inside the playhouse her once husband built for you, into whose window she would poke her head, crouched in the dirt, to see if you were having fun. Sometimes she snuck cookies and chips out to you, treats you were not supposed to have between meals. But her visits were rare. Even then, she and your grandfather did not feel welcome in their son's domain. They wondered what they'd done wrong to raise such an unhappy, liquor-addled man, and what he'd done right to win such a forgiving wife and tender boy-child. It was her ranch he'd inherited, his wife Clarice's, almost like a dowry from her father, a widower consumed by his new love. Your grandmother had wanted you to come live with them in Pennsylvania, on their dairy farm, and your parents did let you spend a couple of summers there. But your mother needed her son, the one thing she could rescue from this disintegrating union on which she inexplicably maintained a tenacious hold. When Frank wasn't drinking, she'd flared at his reproachful parents, he was a terrific rancher, knew stock and crops, and could coax the best prices out of the most stubborn buyers. Handy, he could fix anything, mechanical or motorized, and the music he pulled from the strings of that flea market guitar, which seemed tuned to his vocal cords so that they sang together, wooed and won her with his mellifluence, and the great stranger wit that just the right amount of booze brought out, before he waded in so deep he drowned loved ones in his troubles. Growing up with him that way, you were less inclined to find any saving graces in your father's self-sown hell. You rode out the early years, raced through the middle ones, and ran from them in teenage. You entered realms where Frank would never find you, and Clarice would not think to look. Dove into poetry, whose soulful bearings and veiled labyrinths thronged your clefts and nourished there the life of significant soil. Magnetized by your charismatic outpour, which the girls revered, a group of studly wannabes hung with you. The outlaw poets, you named them with casual irony, as if poets could be other. Gave readings and gave heartache, thrilled your teachers, created an outlaw's chapbook titled The Fury and the Mire of Human Veins, a line from W.B., the Irish Bard. 
lived as far from home as the line of command allowed, sleeping overtime when they reeled you in. Harsh was the monotonous clamor from Frank and Clarice. Nasty was your own. Broken only by an occasional unguarded intimacy you shared with your mother. These sudden illuminations stirred a latent familial vein in your heart that too soon would clot and immobilize you. Retreat was the only way forward, and so you both scurried back into your hideouts, salving the tender spots your surprise alliance had exposed. You and your grandmother, in shared love, both wanted her to die, she ardently, and you guiltily, but justified by her suffering, which was not conventional pain, but a loss of interest in life. She was no longer curious what the future held, for herself and for you. She didn't care to see how it all came out. Lost were her sense of place and belonging in the world. Awakening in the morning was a profound disappointment, for every night she prayed to die in her sleep. What sort of God would compel an old woman to go on and on doing nothing? You, though a mere boy, understood her feeling of uselessness prayed with her. She was an existential crisis, Sisyphus, unwilling to push the rock back up, forced to refuse with vehemence continuously. No need to wait for the afterlife to dwell in eternity in hell, she complained to her grandson. Here I am already. In unspoken covenant, you labored with her to find a gentle way for her to die. She had a stash of painkillers, strong ones from when she'd broken her leg decades before you were born, and she thought about taking the whole lot of them, which she hadn't needed then because her great reserves of energy made for a quick comeback. The pills had expired so long ago that you feared they wouldn't work right, could just leave her a mental cripple still breathing, or worse, and persuaded her not to try. She wasn't really set on the idea herself, didn't trust suicide, at which an aunt of hers had failed unless it was something natural, like starving to death. Again you dissented, for the sake of your heart and humanity. To die well is an art as much as living well, the one we cultivate. Yet there prevails a sense of helplessness in the dying realm, which, along with an abiding terror, insists that the only good death is the one staved off. Thus all our efforts are geared toward prevention— none toward the grace of conduct and spirit that would elevate dying to art. Grief drives the sense of intrusion, injustice, punishment, that the end has come in the middle of things. We do not forgive death, but invent stories to assign blame for mortality to our primogenitors' failings. You read to her as once she had to you, whetting your hunger for a wider life romanced your questing mind with tales and epic poems of adventure, valor, and honor, high-grounded fealty. Ivanhoe, the Three Musketeers, Les Miserables, Huck Finn, the once and future king, the death of Arthur, the Iliad and Odyssey. Greek mythology was a particular favorite of hers, and you came to know the gods as companions of brook and meadow. Summers with her, you voyaged through this expansive terrain where danger heralded a call to action, escapades, glory, rested your character from stories, grew secretly under her tutelage to a boy of righteous moral sturdiness who dreamed of a chance to be tested by a noble cause, prove himself a fearless warrior for good, in time learned to endure the ignominy of a narrow life you barely tolerated, buried your appetite for redemption in poetry from whose nurture you drew the incessant ache of hope 
aggravated and quelled by applying to college, an Eden whose apples were for eating, an Eden on which she, who had first awakened you to the immortal garden, had now closed the gate, her love of learning undermined by her loss of appetite. She fidgeted listlessly on her pillows when you read, would stop you with a gesture in mid-sentence to ask the time or hide away in seeming sleep. Her favorites annoyed her, conjuring better days, and new tales bored. How does it end? She would peeve, urging you to go directly to the closing pages and be done. Your own poems were the only ones that summoned pleasure in her, but you had so few, never enough. You wrote for her, to rouse and entertain, by which you both profited. You sang the words to her, your own tunes, plucked from the guitar. This talent and inheritance passed down from grandfather to son to grandson, whole and unspoiled. Music came easy to all three, who, times you could number, had sung together and made a family of their silver notes. More often she had coaxed evening duets out of you and Grandpa on the broad, screened-in veranda of their Pennsylvania farmhouse, where you'd learned to play, just as your father had not really learned, just come into your birthright, like having a prominent nose. Nights pullulating with the still heat of the day, crickets keeping time with you, and grandma's arms flung rapturously, declaring the portal of heaven cast open to let the angels hearken to your songs. It was the image of those nights that rose when you sought a quieting place to lay your thoughts and go to sleep. Frank now only played drunk, in the barn, you strumming indifferently a few bales down, knowing it didn't matter how you played. But she, a discerning listener, she expected the best, and you delivered. In rare spurts of forgetfulness, she would sing along with you, as she had back then, a few bars, till she heard the quaver in her flimsy pipes. Nonetheless encouraged, you always arrived guitar on shoulder, eager to coax a duet out of her. But these efforts, too, she finally wearied of, and you were left with soup and misery. Despite your premonitions and her intentions, she survived the winter. People die in the dark of the year, she reproached you, like your grandpa, out chopping wood before breakfast, keeled over dead, and I didn't even know it. Gone sudden, gone so much longer than I expected. All these years of loneliness. Why am I still here, Joaquin? Spring banging around the house enraged her. Its raw demands, thick with seed, howling and seducing the land to green. I cannot face another summer. This must stop. Please stop. She and the wind haranguing each other, each begging for a different kind of mercy. One broody afternoon, when you went in with her half-bowl of soup, she waved you to her, eyes lit. She could feel it coming, at last and way too late, a heaviness at the core, a remote pulsing in her blood that signaled the time was nigh, and in fierce pitch claimed she'd discovered the thing left undone that had kept her alive this godforsaken long. Did you know a decent lawyer? You must. It took an impatient minute for you to think of the father of one of the outlaws. You'd met him a couple of times, a nice guy. It wasn't much of a lead, but she grabbed it. Make an appointment for us quick. My will. Nothing to pass on, I thought, till yesterday, 
when Frank slithered in, first time in months, smarmy venom dripping from his fangs. He must have sensed my dying and come to lay claim to his inheritance, which he'd have got if his greed hadn't recalled it to me. His ugly intent was plain, but I lured it out of him. He pulling up stakes for some fantasy life of a tramp singer in a spend-easy town, ten acres and a cabin owned clear, no strings but the six on his guitar tying him down. That land up in Trove, Colorado. A forgotten dream. It's going to you, not Frank, much as he's counted on it. You're the one deserves the chance. It's real pretty land, Joaquin. And that cabin, built by your grandpa on a hill outside of town to be a summer place in our golden years which never came. A fresh start for you one of these days. My only way out, you told her, an exaggeration that felt true. I can pay the lawyer with that turquoise bracelet. Clarice won't wear it anyway. Ranch woman, saddled with a bum who never takes her out anywhere fancy. Make a better marriage than your mother did, for God's sake. I'm sorry I inflicted that man on you all, except that he fathered a wonderful son. Don't know where Paul and I went wrong. Calling the request urgent garnered you an appointment two days later, a Thursday afternoon. You'd been conjuring Byzantine plans for sneaking out, none of which proved necessary, with Clarice off for supplies and Frank on horseback checking fence lines. The nice guy took one look at you, a gaunt pair of desperados with turquoise bracelet and deed in shaky hand, and wrote the will pro bono. He knew more than you'd have liked about your trials from the poems you'd delivered at outlaw readings, too deep inside them to realize how much of you their words exposed. Besides, it was simple a couple of pages with the witness signatures. He promised to file it, give you a copy for your grandmother, and you were back, tucking her into bed unnoticed. For once, and contrary to the creeping onset of the scythe, she swallowed each spoonful with vigor, then fell easily asleep. Maybe worry-free she'll grow stronger, you thought, knowing better. The final week was a happier one, though, in which sweet memories cradled her. After school, she had stories saved up to tell you, some new and others worn. The last evening you sat with her conscious, the two of you laughed about when they got an indoor bathroom at the farm, and great-grandpa, unfamiliar with toilets, laid his pipe on the rim of the water tank and walked away, after which it fell in and he thought his pipe had disappeared, and none of the rest of them could figure out why the darn toilet had broken so shortly after it was installed. You sang to her, old folk songs and your own set-to-poem tunes. One night she closed her eyes and didn't open them again, leaving her body by degrees over the next three days, until it hit zero and she was gone. You were the one who found her, of course, and you found yourself unweeping but selfishly yearning for more time together. You opened the window to set her spirit free, in accord with an archaic belief she'd come to embrace. You stayed with her then, as so often in the late afternoon, and grieved the two years she'd been forced to spend here, dragged from the farm when she was informed that she could no longer take care of herself, knowing, as you did, that she wanted to stay and die where her husband and his family had for generations. The farm had passed to Grandpa's nephew and she to her son. You tried to fix your thoughts on her, whose life was over, keep her memories whole and vibrant, But more than not, you were the one they turned to. No one to tell about your day, complain about your parents with, 
read your poems and sing to, no one to comfort and be comforted by. Being free is no gift when being needed is no burden. Yes, you could go on to college now without worrying, but what did anything you could do matter just doing it for yourself? In the gnaw of those early weeks of spring after she died, you wrote letters to her, stashed them in the old lockbox that had lain empty under her bed. Empty, that is, till a couple of days before she died, when you hid the copy of her will in it and stuck the key in the toe of an unmatched sock you still hoped to find the mate to. Not that these precautions were necessary. The nice guy lawyer had the original, along with the deed to the cabin and the turquoise bracelet, in his office. He'd be the one sharing the news with the family, as she had wanted it to be official and indisputable. The mountains breed storms at every stage of life, childlike whirls that kick up out of nowhere and rain havoc but play out fast. Young buck adolescent storms, a crack of lightning out of sweet morning blue, flooding arroyos with a gush that hauls boulders and cottonwood limbs into culvert swill. Strong, wild, erosive, a show of power no good to anyone but exhilarating nonetheless. The older storms, those are the treacherous ones. They mass slow over the peaks, thunderheads towering like capricious deities. You have plenty of time to watch them building, around here from 70 to 80 miles off. Scenic awe at first, but as they gather in the cowering sky, obscure the mountains with their swell, you know to brace and pray that the rooted bowels of the land hold firm, and that none of the lightning bolts they hurl strikes close. Frank listened politely as the will was read, which didn't take five minutes, asked the nice guy how much he owed him, and when he heard nothing, stood, shook his hand, and guided you out the door. Clarice had the bracelet on her arm, and you could see she was touched, more so than her mother-in-law might have guessed. To be thought of was a change for her. At the car, Frank paused to square eyes with you. All that soup and ass-kissing paid off for you, son. Maybe. I wouldn't get too cocky about taking possession of that land. You could feel the air cooling hard. When the storm broke, you'd be up far gone into the hills at a meadow you called Heart's Ease. There you used to go regularly to get clear and quiet, compose poetry, read, spin wishes. Your mother would know where you were, but he wouldn't, nor imagine she did. She'd be too smart to hang around anyway. Your pack was ready to slip on and you to slip out. It would take him an hour or more to get liquored up enough to kill you. It was a good plan, but not much trouble for a sober man with a history of escape to see through. Opening the back door, you nearly walked head-on into the bullet end of his rifle. There didn't seem to be any question about how serious he was and unlikely to respond to any deterrence, nor about his skill as a marksman, even drunk. You followed the wave of the barrel toward the booze cabinet in the living room, took off your pack, and sat down. You were a decent shot yourself, but would be dead before you had time to extract your pistol from the long johns where you'd wedged it in your pack. You were overdressed for indoors, but feeling temporary. Frank's guitar stood against the bookshelf in the corner, and it egged you to remember the first song you two had played together. One of the classics, Puff the Magic Dragon, The Rainbow Connection. This land is your land. Of course, that's why your mind went to it. All those books were Clarice's. 
She'd wanted to study literature and do some writing, but the ranch got in her way, just as it might yours. Not that it was a bad life, as long as it was a short one. The storm was crackling, frenzied, hair on your arms jittery, air darkened. Swiveling toward the thunder, you tried to translate its bellow into a language you recognized. The gist was familiar. You'd heard all this spumed before, but what it meant for you churned unknowable. Where was Clarice? She'd headed directly for the barn, gone for a ride, outrun the storm, as you'd intended to. Not that she could subdue it, but together she and you formed a subtle windbreak that absorbed the impact. That she'd deserted you at its outset meant you would not survive the blast, meant she'd chosen not to witness your demise. Sure, it was coming. Or that she trusted you to get away on your own, mother and son fending for themselves. Regardless, you could have done with a burst-in of Clarice just then, as the squall reached her entrance in its tail, the same story it told whenever fire raged in its veins. Of how, growing up on the Pennsylvania farm, duty-bound to slopping hogs, plucking chickens, milking cows, plowing fields, cutting wood, checking fences, shoeing horses, birthing and burying and all the rank, bloody, gritty rest of it, he, with his clarion voice and native gift for musical invention, dreamed of heading out west to fame, and above all, fortune, as a singer-songwriter. L.A., Hollywood, got as far as Vista Grande, where he paused to earn some bucks, found a steady gig playing at the saloon on Abbott Road, becoming a local star when he danced with a gal whose prairie eyes he roamed searching for his reflection, fell full out for her tempered grace, but more than that, her emanations of freedom, like she didn't care whether or not he did, like she was all set, the luxury afforded a woman of independent means and spirit, and she sure as hell seemed to be, owning a ranch, 500 acres outside Vista Grande nestled in the embrace of the Sangre de Cristos, which he took to signify she had money, more fool he, which is how he ended up in the life he'd set himself to leave, not only milking now, but cutting, roping, branding, castrating, and loading the damn black Angus to sell, and saddled with a kid to boot, which he sometimes did, out of bed and into the corral to give him a goddamn hand, in debt and under gut-clenching pressure to keep the dwindling herd going through droughts and fires, make those interest payments, do more and get less. Meanwhile, growing old and no songs written, hardly ever even playing, only friend a guzzle and puke bottle the world against him, screwed today by his own fucking mother. One last chance at happiness to grab onto, in spite of everything that spoke for not bothering to, because she couldn't live forever, Jesus, 93, bedridden but still here in their spare room, tightening that screw till it bolted him to the doom of a failed rancher nobody could endure. Trove. He'd held on and out for that ten acres, his father's glow baiting the hook from youth but promises to take him along annulled by his own headstrong run to the West, and then the early years romancing Clarice, learning to ranch, drinking, getting stuck so bad he couldn't think his way out before his father died and nothing more of Trove was said. Out loud. To himself, to gentle his heart, it became the bride of his salvation. Oh, he'd been there now, secretly, found the deed in public records, stayed in the cabin, assured it was all but his, and got acquainted with the town, 
a jackpot of a place to start over. Money? Yeah, he'd skimmed and scrounged through the years, enough to launch. Whatever the old lady claimed in her half-assed will, Trove was his. Simple. You would sign the deed over to him, get it notarized, and he'd be gone. A plan that easy, it seems to you, shouldn't have required getting drunk. In the momentary cessation of rack, the storm drawing breath for a new assault, you understood that it wasn't the idea had driven him to booze, but its fulfillment, which rested on your agreement. The why and the how, those pesky villains that have scuttled a world of grand conceptions. Given, as he knew, that you would not freely sign over a toothpick to him, what inducement could he muster to coerce you? The rifle suggested his strategy, a clumsy one that would garner him, beyond a life sentence he felt he was already serving but this one in prison, nothing. Or you have a fatal accident. Your pack gone, and you out of here an hour after you got the land. Eighteen. No one's going to doubt you ran off. They'll never find your body, and when you don't show up in Trove or thereabouts, that deed will pass to me as next of kin. Seven years before a missing person can be declared dead. I'll wait up there, in the cabin. Who's going to evict me? I guess they won't suspect anything. Yeah, that you're a good-for-nothing teenage runaway. Happens all the time. The original deed is still at the lawyer's. We'll have to get it in the morning for me to sign over to you. Standing up as though the conversation for now were over. Fucking shithead. You signed your death warrant with that dumbass move. Blazing, the storm pitched itself at you, who, grossly outweighed, gunned, and hated, slammed against the wall, muzzle hard into your chest, its bulleted shaft supporting Frank more than threatening you till he regained his footing. Outside. How fastidious, refusing to spill your blood in the house, and less trouble to clean up. But that was just one detail among so many he hadn't thought through. For instance, what if you refused to go outside to get shot? Move! Cocked, aimed, safety off. Your life riding on an intuition that he wouldn't kill you in the living room between the sofa and the entertainment center. Last warning. How drunk was he? Your life riding on an equation. Degree of inebriation over difficulty of cleanup times desperation. I can do it once, neat, outside, through the neck, or here, a bunch of shots, balls first. You knew him as angry, defeated, reckless, but not cruel. Torch the house after, blame it on you. Clarice's birthplace. As cars are projections of virility, so homes, this one for sure, can be vessels of fertility. Her consciousness of being was embedded in these walls, splattering you across them and then incinerating the house to destroy the evidence, she would cease to be. The battle had drifted into slow motion as you negotiated with Frank, generating a sense of foolishness that he was unaware of. Time has no dimension in a whiskey glass. You were drained of energy to prolong the outcome, fighting over a chimerical place called Trove where neither of you would ever dwell. You wanted only for him to go away, which meant you had to. Weariness slacked your bones as you yielded. Inertia shuffled your feet toward the door, foregoing a command from your brain. Windows on both sides of the carved oak entrance revealed slant rays, the departing sun. It was still spring, you noted, still your favorite season, still two weeks from your 18th birthday, and the fruit trees not yet in bloom. Might bear this summer, 
the one fruit year in seven that was all they expected around here. How your grandmother had hated overwintering, despaired at the onset of lilacs and forsythia. It would be good to cease missing her. Graduation in a month, college in four. Another chimerical place you'd never see. The leafing, the return of hummingbirds, monarchs passing through, pignons candling, light spooling into evening, cricket songs and bird flitters, meadowlarks, grosbeaks, doves, jays, hawks. Run along days of streaming, flying, that pulled you into a wilderness of desire to erupt and soar free of old ways and needs, to lean into the wind, to shed your habitual skin and bank naked into the currents of dream. What you would do after opening the door and stepping through into spring was wheel suddenly and knock the rifle hard against the frame, knee Frank in the balls, grab the gun, sprint to the corral, mount Strider, bridle him if you had time, and be gone. Remember to close your eyes before you wheeled to keep from being sunblind. Wished you'd kept the pack on, but you'd make it anyway, one night. The way to heart's ease was imprinted in sense memory, though you weren't the writer Clarice was. Maybe she'd be there, stocked up, campfire lit, summer and so much beauty near, the attempt was worth making. But she wasn't there. She hadn't any thought of it. Was here, waiting at the door. Hadn't counted on you getting away to join her elsewhere. Hadn't left you in mortal danger. What mother would? Surprised you'd not learned enough about mothers from tending Ruth to know that. Even cowardly and peaceable ones will strike to defend their offspring. Although she could have done so sooner. Frank was set to shoot you in the living room if it came to that. And where would she have been? Blazing through the door, of course. But she knew you'd be out and he wouldn't kill you till you were. She was your mother, spoken indignantly as if that explained how. You, in mid-wheeling, when she shoved you to the side, struck Frank a furied blow to the head with a log, yanked the rifle from him, hit him again twice, and as he buckled, whipped him with a horse crop about the neck and back, a beating that would leave scars. She had her pistol trained on him in case her assault failed, which it did not. Breathing steep, she ordered you to grab his other boot, and together you dragged him from the threshold before he'd bloodied it irrevocably. With rope she'd left beside the door, you trust him, then slid his heavy, stinking form onto a tarp and pulled him to the barn. He was moaning now as he regained consciousness, and you knew shortly he would writhe and roar, but the prospect did not unnerve Clarice, so you held firm. Into the barn you rolled him, padlocking the door from the outside, though trust he could hardly have managed to escape. Your mother gave then, and you leaned, slumped together, staggering back to the house. Tomorrow? You had fixed tea, chamomile with honey and cream, sitting now as victors after the siege at the kitchen table, shaken but euphoric, adrenaline coursing. You, mostly she, had defeated the monster who had ravaged both your lives for far too long. But what now? She, the mother, you should have known she would, had a plan. Go to the nice guy and tell him your story, Get a restraining order that won't let Frank set foot within a mile of either of you. Divorce him quick. If he didn't agree or asked for anything at all, take him to court for assault and battery, intent to kill. Prison or banishment were his only choices, and he could forget that damn land in Trove forever. That's the one thing you feared he would not do, even with an order compelling restraint. But the promised land was a war that lay many tomorrows hence. 
closer battles loomed. Your mother, who very likely had saved your life, now turned to you. It was too much. She couldn't handle things alone. To save the ranch, you had to team with her as Frank once had. Take the lead instead of follow orders. Even after she sold off 50 acres to a developer who'd been at her for a couple of years, a move she'd desperately resisted, but the interest on those loans was killing her faster than losing a chunk of her homestead would. She grimly cut the herd to 80 head, knowing she might have to auction a few more after the coming winter. To you, it seemed unwise to persist in the illusion that she could make a life ranching, though it was the only way she ever had or wanted to. But you'd been doubtful since the onset of adolescence, when you saw that your parents' incompatibility ill-fitted them for any risky venture undertaken as a duo. College? Your financial aid package was terrific, though you'd still end up with loans. Next year, with the further losses you anticipated from the ranch, it might be even better, depending on who else, more desirable than you and needier, applied. No guarantees on money from year to year, though they would hold your spot. Never count on things, Clarice taught you, a lesson that experience had already done a brutal job of inculcating. This time she softened never by promising that it would only be a year and that she would see you through college thereafter no matter how many acres it took to do so. In truth, the ranch was yours someday, your home, your inheritance, your destiny, she hoped. And why would you contradict her, your just now nearly broken savior? And thus you, not by nature a nurturer, became the caregiver for older women kin, soup spooner for your grandmother, ranch partner for your mother, both strong women, both wounded, both disillusioned, both facing unsavory prospects. The truly formidable challenge of this new arrangement with Clarice was not the work to which you were accustomed and which in some ways would be easier to do without Frank, despite his prodigious skill, but the effort of staunching the resentment that threatened to leak from your mouth and eyes, to sound, look, and behave as though you cared about the well-being of cattle you were raising to be slaughtered, tightening fences to be sure they didn't bolt or die unprofitably in the jaws of a cougar, to fill water tanks and harvest grain for these same damn cows whose death was your livelihood, to be convincing in a role you played with no conviction. At times, you were sure she saw through you, but then at the next moment seemed oblivious, as though she believed you were just fine, maybe even happy. Did she fool herself or cling to the pretense to ward off guilt? You and she both play-acting for each other? The absurdity of that idea provoked your high-speed suicidal runs in the truck out to the farthest reaches of your cow-stubbled, cow-trampled, cow-shat property. You ate as little meat as possible to ensure your labor wasn't worth the effort. At least, you told yourself, when the swell subsided, at least you had time to write this year. Get your portfolio in good shape. Make it a work of art to present for admission to poetry classes. Submit to literary magazines. Establish an online presence, a following, credentials. Make yourself discoverable. Ranching had exhausted Clarice and Frank, but you were young and could go without much sleep. So you put aside the college folder, books you'd planned to read, remnants of high school, and in the clearing, lit by moon some nights, enshrined your journal. Spurred yourself through grimy days of dust and muck with the image of silver hours composing lines. When they didn't come at first, you appeased yourself with cautionary whispers of patience. 
And indeed, there will be time, there will be time, there will be time, murmured Timorous Prufrock. You doodled, stuttered, scrawled the hollow pages of night after night. Only words from your limited sphere came to you. Iron, leather, wood, fur, hoof, ball, fork, tractor, corral, fence, boot, shit, blood, seer, afterbirth, rope, hay. Dirty words with frayed jeans. Words with no imagination, symbolism, or lyricism that you could detect. Nothing to think about. You wrote them all down and drew a diagonal line through them. Move on. But you couldn't. That was all the vocabulary you had left. Barren of thought, you headed for bed and found the sleep of the damned dreamless. You grew taciturn, stopped speaking in sentences, stopped talking altogether beyond manure and flies. As your mother and Frank had. Orders, questions, information, no frills. You regarded Clarice with the pained sympathy of a fledgling adult. Ranching didn't wear out the body, but the mind. No refuge nor reflection. Just the wearisome trudge into oblivion. Most of the time, it was impossible to be alone here, where both of you were isolated and desperate. Joined, if not connected. The end that was once in sight had lost its meaning. When the day comes to leave for college, will you go? If so, will you fail as so many ranch boys do, coming home with a shrug and sashaying back into the corral? Learn to compose cowboy poems, forcing the sagebrush range into metaphor, building similes from homilies, turning gruel into grit and churning rustic into romance. American primitive, also transparent and predictable. Best not to go to college at all. You would not become who you thought. And for her? The end that lay perilously near would sunder spirit from flesh. She would become whom she never thought, landless sellout, living off the stock market rather than her stock. No more at home than a Mustang in a circus ring. No more alive than a winter-sapped pine. She would go on for lack of choice like his grandmother, but young enough to spoon her own soup when she remembered to be hungry. Hers would be the deepest loss, and you knew she knew, and thus spoke obliquely to her of the future, foreshortening it to a week, as did she, blinded by the implacable dissolution that awaited both you and her. The one person left to talk to was yourself, and the sole story you told yourself began with your grandmother's end and led to castrating bulls. You told it constantly, adding the rare day that mattered as a way to make sense of it. At the departure point, when what comes next was the present moment, a small ribbon of silence, then it began again. You could hit pause for hours at a time, pick up exactly where you left off, whether you liked it or not. It was clear nothing else occupied that space where your brain once resided, until the disc stopped playing or the machinery broke down and the silence curled on and on. When you are truly alone, you lose the sense of your existence. You cannot hear the music because you are the music, cannot see the sky because you are the sear veil of blue between earth and infinity. To exist means to stand out from, and you do not, because you are a part of, not apart from, the world. It is an inert state of being in which, unbounded, nothing is asked of you. 
you do not exist as a self, neither free nor captive, neither coming nor going, neither chafing nor resigned, neither conceiving nor perceiving, neither growing nor diminishing, waking nor dreaming, desiring nor disdaining, but simply widening with the morning light. Alone because truly you are not. Alone you pass for a shadow of the unmoored night. Alone you breathe as a mountain does, over centuries of imperturbability. Alone you forgo nostalgia as ice in a glacial cavern yields to the tongues of sea. Alone your embrace is wind and your memory sand. Alone you have no loss to grieve, for what you have been is nothing you will ever be again. June and your eighteenth year was gone. Frank wrote to say that he was in a rehab center in Albuquerque, an easy drive, and had reached AA's Step 9 of the Twelve, in which he needed to apologize to the people he'd hurt, Clarice and you, his son, and ask their forgiveness. He could call or he could meet you in person at a place of your choosing. You said forget it, he wouldn't see you anymore as long as he lived, except at the business end of a loaded gun. You exhorted Clarice to follow suit, but knew she'd cave, as she did. The siren lure of their early days still sang through the prairie grass. She'd never ceased wanting him as he was then, nor she herself as the unbridled young woman. Once you saw his inevitable return in her eyes, you jammed your stuff in the pack, the same one you'd filled on that spring night a year ago, shouldered it and your guitar, took off for college. Clarice's protests that she would drive you there come fall swept aside, gently but surely. You hit the highway west, thumb out, a good-looking kid, throwback to the 60s, the kind of guy who can get a ride from anyone and easily make it out to the coast, where you hitched up scenic Route 1 going north to Seattle. Within a week, you found work in a coffee shop, which bloomed here like Chamisa back home, golden, wild, and ubiquitous. July, you started playing guitar when the boarding house noise would drown out your chords, a tentative strum with no words, occasionally caught a faint reflection of yourself in the mirror, near month's end read Keats, Shelley, and dared their passion to breach your granite ramparts. August, you wrote a fragment, spindle-rooted in a fertile clot of longing for a voice you'd not heard before, nourished by the persistent trickle through subterranean veins. Your spirit yawned, rose to greet you, shy but eager, like a rediscovered friend. You stood on the verge of maybe, beset by doubts, but unable to repress the will to hope, fiercer than its counterpart, surrender. You planted yourself intently in affirmation's generative loam, still new enough to be easily torn up, but sturdy enough to hold on. September, you entered the university not counting on anything but your resolve.